start with our first student. They'll all introduce themselves, but this is Bethany Albrecht. Good afternoon. Can everybody hear me? Yes. Awesome. Thank you. So I'm Bethany Albrecht. I'm one of the CNL Masters of Nursing students at Colby Sawyer. And this afternoon, I'm going to talk to you about my quality improvement project on the birthing pavilion. Back in the fall, we all conducted five P's assessments, which looks at the purpose of a microsystem, the patients they take care of, the professionals who work there, their process, and their patterns. And from this and discussion with the unit leadership, pain reassessment came up as an area for potential improvement. They had identified that a few years ago they had been doing really well with their pain reassessment. And unfortunately, in recent months, they had noticed a decline, and they wanted to get back up to their organizational goal and back up with the Joint Commission standards. So I took this information, and I went back out to the staff, and I started talking with them about what they were noticing and what they were seeing. And a lot of them confirmed that pain reassessment was an area that they were slipping from in a, a little bit, and they were pretty disappointed about that. So I decided that this would be an appropriate project to work on with them. One of the big things that came up was that these are very dedicated professionals. They work in a very specific specialty, and they really care about the patients that they work with. So a large part of my background work was coming up with a evidence-based reason for why this was important for their patient population. And there's evidence out there to support that if pain in the postpartum period is not well managed, those moms have a two and a half times higher rate of postpartum depression, which has pretty serious downstream effects for both mom and baby, and that they have higher rates of chronic pain. Chronic pain is a big concern in today's day and age with our opioid epidemic, and because of that, the Joint Commission has really renewed focus on pain management starting in January of this year. They put out a bulletin saying this is going to be a big focus moving forward, so this really felt like an appropriate and timely project to work on. Based on this information and a goal stated on the Birthing Pavilion's website that their goal is to hit 90% pain reassessment rate, I moved forward with the project. And my aim was to get up to that 90% rate by the end of April. So my first PDSA cycle was just making people aware. So PDSA cycles are rapid process improvement that you put in place. And what I found out being up there was that the nurses were not aware of where they were. They knew they weren't doing quite as well as they had been, but they didn't really know where they were falling in terms of this week we were at 50% or 90%. They had no clue. So I started by posting weekly updates with where they were at. Um, I'm very fortunate that Vista software that the hospital subscribed to sends out weekly unit averages, and I was able to get on that mailing list. So getting those weekly updates out and published was my first step, and people seemed to really enjoy getting that feedback um, as a unit instead of individually. Moving forward with that, I created a unit-specific education plan, which was my second improvement cycle. That was delayed a little bit in starting. The unit is under construction right now, and so I wasn't able to start that as soon as I wanted to in the process um, because I wanted to get it signed off by unit management. But um, that is up and running now, and that's going really well. So the education specifically focuses on the needs specific to their patient population, which cite the evidence about the postpartum depression, the chronic pain, and the Joint Commission's expectations moving forward. Um, it also focuses on the tools that are already in place in our electronic medical record. 
We're really fortunate that EDH has a lot of tools that make it really easy and quick to reassess pain, and they have reminders that are already in place. A lot of the nurses knew about one or two of them, but not all of them, so I pulled all of this together into a PowerPoint, and at this time, I'm currently working on doing individualized education with every staff member on the unit regarding the tools that are already in place in the electronic medical record. And that's being very well received. A lot of people are thankful to know that there is quicker ways to go through and document their pain reassessment, because what I've heard pretty consistently is that the pain reassessment is happening on a very regular basis. It's just not finding its way into the medical record. So with my second PDSA cycle being a little bit delayed, I'm probably not going to get to my third PDSA cycle, which was to provide individualized feedback. But I've been able to pull together a spreadsheet for the unit nurse manager, which I'm class I've already passed on to her. And after my education is complete, she's planning on taking that back to staff and providing them that feedback. So there is a plan to continue this work even after my time as a student on the birthing pavilion has come to a close. I'm very fortunate that I had a lot of support from the unit and um, their educator, their clinical nurse specialist, and their nurse manager. Um, as you can see, there was a slight increase in their pain reassessment. And while I don't have this data, I just got the data from this past week after I've made it through about 30% of the unit staff with the individualized education. And we're up at 70%, which is the highest we've been since I've started the project. So I'm very excited. One data point doesn't quite give you a trend, but it's still exciting um, to see we're moving in the right direction. So thank you for your time, and I'd like to open it up for any questions. Yes. What among your findings maybe could generalize to some of our other clinical areas? Thank you. So the question was, what could be generalized to other clinical areas? I think from the background information I've done, um, the research that I found, it specifies a lot about how this is a big goal for the Joint Commission moving forward. And so I think that looking ahead, this is going to be really important for every clinical area to focus on. Um, one of the biggest things was the literature supports that both individualized education and the Hawthorne effect, essentially making people aware of where you are, are the two best ways to increase pain reassessment. So I'm planning on taking that back to my home unit that I work on. Yes. Can you speak a little bit to um, the barriers you encountered for the nursing staff to um, do their pain assessment and kind of some of the things which I think are awesome that you kind of identified um, making, the, making the numbers probably more lower than they should be. Um, can you just speak a little bit to that? Absolutely. So the question is um, some of the barriers with the nursing staff and um, how those were addressed. Um, so one of the biggest barriers that I encountered was pain reassessment documentation is viewed as a low priority task. Um, a lot of the focus is on the patient care and staying at the bedside, and on this unit specifically, a lot of education teaching mom how to breastfeed. And a lot of the staff were telling me they were doing these pain reassessments but not getting the information into the chart, which is why I geared my education specifically towards what tips and tricks are already in place in EDH to make it easier for them to document quickly. Part of the education was also that background information about why it was so pertinent to this patient population, and that seemed to be pretty eye-opening for a lot of people about why this documentation piece is so important. Um, so really making it relevant for the patient population they care for was huge. That was big in getting buy-in. And you also uncovered a pretty big IT problem. Yes. Also. 
Yeah, so one of the um, IT issues that came up from this um, in EDH, there's an unable to assess button, and a lot of the birthing pavilion moms have babies that are not on the unit. They're across the hall in the intensive care nursery. And so if the nurse went to reassess a mother's pain and she was across the hall vis visiting baby, the uh, unable to assess button would count that against the nurses. So it would say they didn't do a pain reassessment, which was not accurate. They attempted to, and mom was just not available to do that within that hour time frame of giving a PO medication. So the IT folks were actually able to go back in. They didn't realize this was broken and fix this behind the scenes. So now when they go in there and they click that unable to assess button, if mom is not available, it will give them credit for documenting a pain reassessment. Okay. Thank you. Can anyone hear me? Everyone can hear me? Yeah. I'm a little bit of a walker, so. So my name is Leslie Burke, and I did my CNL practicum in the CDCC, the Cardiovascular Critical Care Unit. And to start out, uh, I did the same five piece assessment as the rest of my classmates did. But the one thing the unit leadership really wanted me to focus on was do uh, was engagement survey results from last year. So the engagement survey results showed that the nurses and the staff felt like they needed help with teamwork on the unit, and we were about 22% below the national average uh, for teamwork. Though the we were doing a little bit better than the rest of the hospital, so we were doing something right, but we weren't quite meeting the benchmark. And it was something that the nurses voiced. Pretty, pretty continuously throughout. Um, they also had a lot of anecdotal, anecdotal type data that there was issues at night. And so with the cardiology fellows covering multiple units, they were having trouble uh, getting their needs met for their patient, mostly at night, but it was happening during the day too. There was more people during the day, but um, the same issues were kind of coming up. So the first thing I did was in collaboration with unit leadership, we did a pilot in December. And in December, we used simulation-based training to increase interprofessional education and collaboration. So IPE has been a focus of the IOM and the AACN for a few years. A lot of it is done in undergraduate, and you know, while you're still in school, you can collaborate, and if there's a, um, a college that has both undergraduate nurses and pre-medicine um, undergraduates, then that's where it's happening, but it's not always happening in the inpatient units. So using that, coming up with a simulation that would be beneficial for the nurses to attend and the fellows, the cardiology fellows. So we did one hour session. It was very limited timing wise because the cardiology fellows have about one hour a week that's free, that is not blocked off for something else. It's Friday afternoon <laughs> at noon. Um, the unit is usually winding down from the cases during the week. They do a lot of cardiothoracic cases and schedule the missions in the beginning of the week, so usually Friday is pretty good. 
So it was very reliant on staffing. We wanted the nurses to be there on the unit working and be able to take them away from the unit for one hour to do this so they wouldn't have to come in on their own time. In a rural area, a lot of our nurses are coming from extended uh, length locations, so we didn't want to have to then force them to come in separately on a day that they're not working. So we did this simulation. We found it really helpful. Both the nursing staff and the cardiology fellows felt like they were able to use their skills. And then as observers, we noticed a lot of breakdown, communication specifically. There was a lot of assumptions being made during the scenario. Things weren't being said aloud. There was very little role clarification and closed loop communication happening. And whether that was related to those select few feeling like they had a really good working team relationship, it was still important every time to say what you're doing and why you're doing it. And say who you are and introduce yourself. So that went well. And after that, we then did a readiness for interprofessional learning survey. And this survey would, was just going to give us an idea of whether the, both the physician colleagues and the nursing colleagues felt like it was important. It was something that we needed to do. If I had results that said they didn't feel like it was important, I had a big barrier to jump. But I got lucky. Everyone felt like it was important and felt like it was worth their time, both in um, physicians and nurses, though I only had 15 respondents, which is fairly low, considering it's about 40 nurses and 13 fellows. Um, then I decided to do some lunch and learns, and I did three with the CBCC nurses and one with the cardiology fellows. I met with each group. I had about half of the cardiology fellows show up to the lunch and learn, and we talked about what interprofessional education looks like and what, it, what our plan for it was going to be, and then I opened the room up to see if they had ever participated in interprofessional education before. One out of about the seven even knew what it was and had participated in it. And this was because their college was associated with um, a nursing school. So then we went on to meet with the, the CCC nurses and it was really interesting to hear their feedback about where the breakdowns were happening. It was mostly at night. It was about communication. It had to do with both technology and skill level of the fellows and whether or not they knew the fellow or they knew their previous experience. The first session was unsuccessful related to acuity on the unit and whether or not they, everyone, nobody basically said, I definitely gonna be there. That was the problem. So that was one of our limitations. We had to cancel that. So I was a little disappointed. Um, but then I used unit leadership and got some more buy-in and went directly to the nurses. I, they identified a handful of nurses that they thought would be um, willing to help with this. And our first one is going to happen on Friday. So cross my fingers. And then I also went to the cardiology fellows, one of their um, conferences, and physically asked them for participation. It's a little bit harder to say no when you're in person. Um, so after that, we'll follow up with a survey, the Interprofessional Collabor Collaboration Communication Attainment Survey. And the only limitation with that is it's a self-reported survey, but it, um, it'll at least give us a jumping off point for further work. Sustainability of this work is going to be um, hopefully you know, continued and you know, really interesting utilizing uh, simulation training with the nurses and the cardiology fellows going forward on a skills day. 
um, would be the ideal. So the nurses are coming in anyway for their skills day, and the last hour would be uh, you know, team training with the cardiology fellows. Um, there are a couple of balancing measures we're going to watch. We're going to, you know, of course, make sure that our hack rates don't increase with this new initiative. We're going to watch our code blue activations if they're up or down. And then we're going to just kind of follow um, qualitative data based on feedback we get from the nurses and the fellows. I'd like to open it up if anyone has any questions. Um, I think a little bit of both. I think that it impacted it because I feel like they all understand that this is a problem, but at the same same point, they also feel like they're a very siloed unit and they deal with a very you know specific patient population. And the CT surgery and the cardiology silos work very independently. And I think they have an idea of what the CT surgery silo is and that that works really well. But they have this idea, we don't really know where to go with the cardiology silo and whether or not you know, we can kind of jump that fence a little bit. Thank you. Thank you. Turn the lights down a little bit because there's so much to see on the slides. <laughs> Can everybody hear me okay up top? Yeah, awesome. Um, so my name is Katie Derrick. I completed my quality improvement project in the emergency department here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Um, and so I'm going to talk to you guys a little bit about that project work between last semester and this semester. So some background on the work, um, what we identified as a leadership team in the emergency department as an area for potential needs improvement was standardization of patient handoff in the emergency department. It was identified by our leadership team as something that they were hoping to work on in the few um, coming months, as well as identified feedback from accepting units um, that there's an area and potentially some knowledge gap in what information should be pertinent to include in a patient report. So background on this, communication breakdown is the root cause of Sentinel events reported to the Joint Commission and contributes to two-thirds of all medical errors. Academic emergency medicine centers present a specifically unique barrier to safe handoff because the handoffs involve coordination of care for highly complex patients under significant time constraints. As you can imagine, working in an emergency setting, you prioritize your time and your interventions accordingly to the patient clinical status, so that can sometimes pose a barrier in patient handoff. In 2013, the IPASS mnemonic, which stands for Illness Severity, Patient Summary, Action List, Situation Awareness, and Synthesis by Receiver, was developed in an effort to prevent error in verbal handoff. Further study by this group demonstrated a decrease in medical errors from 33.8% to 18.3% after IPASS was implemented. Subsequently, the IPASS project was implemented in nine pediatric residency programs throughout the United States and Canada, with a reduction in the overall medical error rate by 26%, and a decrease in preventable adverse events by 30%. 
Um, so originally, the iPass was actually developed for resident handoff intershift report from physician to physician. Um, and there's limited research on iPass utilization in nursing, which was part of the reason I was prompted to utilize this tool to see if it, in fact, could be tailored specifically to nursing handoff as well. Uh, so this, for this project, ED to PICU transfers were identified for the initial implementation phase due to the project lead, myself, also acting as a pediatric ICU safety champion, working three clinical shifts a week full-time on that unit made it really easy to collaborate between the two departments. Uh, the intent of identifying one unit was to assure quality with a small test of, ch of change before rolling it out to all patient handoffs. Um, this is really important in quality improvement work because you want to identify any potential barriers um, and potential adverse outcomes before rolling it out to a really large population of patients. The project's specific aim was to increase the frequency with which the five key components of safe handoff in the IPASS mnemonic are included during nursing report in the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Emergency Department to 90% by May 5th. Um, so listed here, you guys can see um, on the left-hand side there is the IPASS and the expected content. So illness severity, identifying the patient's clinical condition as either stable, watcher, or unstable. The patient summary would include events leading up to the admission, their course in the emergency department, assessment and plan moving forward. The action list is a to-do list for the accepting RN, things that may not have gotten done during the emergency department visit. Situation awareness and contingency planning, know what's going on and plan for what might happen. Something familiar to all of us who work in a critical care or emergency setting is to plan for the worst but hope for the best. Preparation is always key with these patient populations. And synthesis by receiver, the opportunity for the accepting RN to summarize what was heard and the opportunity to ask follow-up questions. Um, and then on the on your right-hand side of that slide um, is actually the specific detailed um, PICU sample for the report outlined utilizing the IPASS format that was shared to the nursing staff. In methods and annotated as a flowchart was the patient transfer process from the ED observed during the five P's assessments. Two areas of delay, which are highlighted with yellow errors for you guys to see there, um, included bed availability on the admitting unit and accepting RN availability for report. So one of the reasons not only to improve patient safety in the emergency department, but also something on a larger scale that's important to consider is the backup of patients in our emergency departments. Those are really designed for our high acuity, fast paced patients who we wanna move through quickly and safely. And what was happening was beds not becoming available and RNs not being available to accept report was delaying patient movement um, from the emergency department and causing a backup in those areas. Displayed as a Gantt chart timeline included scheduled time for baseline data collection, PDSA cycle one, PDSA cycle two, and final data analysis. PDSA cycle one included displayed information about IPASS and how and why it's used in practice, utilizing PowerPoint presentation, which was disseminated to the ED staff via their existing educational initiative platform in the emergency department, which is actually a screen in their staff lounge. So every month, the educator in the ED will present a topic of interest to the staff and um, display it on the screen in their staff lounge. 
PDSA cycle one data was collected and recording using the same methods as the baseline data collection. Um, and the baseline data collection consisted of report observation, specifically percent inclusion of the IPASS mnemonic components. PDSA cycle two, as you can tell from the Gantt timeline, has not yet been completed related to a limitation, which was project timeline. So our overall results, inclusion criteria of the key components of IPASS mnemonic increased after PDSA cycle one and is displayed here as a bar graph. So the bar graph on the right of left-hand side, you can tell has smaller um, percent inclusions than the right-hand side. A staff survey also identified the most significant barrier to giving report as accepting RN availability, which is consistent with our previous microsystem assessment findings. PDSA cycle two, uh, we haven't yet gotten to that part of the uh, quality improvement phase, but it was identified as the need to develop an electronic handoff tool in EDH. As we transition healthcare to the electronic format, it's gonna be really important that we have a guide and a tool that we can add in. So um, accepting RNs can see hopefully the same information that report giving RNs are having on their screen as well to, eliminate, um, to eliminate any potential gaps or error. Unit champions in the emergency department and the PICU have been identified for sustainability of this initiative as well. So to discuss some overall limitations, um, limitations include that this was a small study conducted at one institution with a limited time frame. There was low volume of ED to PICU transfers overall, and 20% of the nursing staff participated in the survey, which were um, resulted to gear our next PDSA cycles. Data collection and report observer for all the data was the project leader. Future implications are identified as um, engaging nursing informatics in the utilization of electronic tools, utilize project champions in continuation of this work, further literature review of electronic handoff and benchmarking with other institutions, and continue project over an extended time frame to increase data and hopefully demonstrate um, statistically significant results. Similar to this quality improvement project, the CNL role itself evolved out of growing concern for patient safety and the need to improve the quality of care delivered. As a CNL during this project implementation, the role included interpretation of patterns and trends, integration of knowledge and analysis for solutions, systems knowledge of microsystem and complex organizations, demonstration of interdisciplinary leadership and collaboration, and the use of performance measures to assess and improve the delivery of evidence-based practices and promote outcomes that demonstrate delivery of higher value care. I think another essential outcome of this project was identifying the value of collaborative partnership between the CNL and the existing leadership team. I was fortunate to join a very forward-thinking and cohesive team who currently have a practicing CNL in their structure. It was with their empowerment and support that this project was able to gain traction, and I would like to take this opportunity to formally thank them for their participation and contribution in this important work as well. So thank you. I'd like to open it up for all questions. Yeah, Bethany. I think this is awesome. Is this something the I-PASS that you envision potentially rolling out to other units? 
Yeah, so the question is, um, is the iPass mnemonic something we envision rolling out to other units as well? And ideally, yes. I think standardizing patient handoff, especially from such a high-paced um, environment like the emergency department settings, is really valuable. And to have consistency in practice is, as you can imagine, um, just another way to provide safety checkpoints for patients and nurses. So ideally, yeah. <laughs> Any other questions? <laughs> I know, right? All good things take time. Uh, Nicole's question is, where are we with the online portion of the next phase of the implementation? Um, and I have worked with nursing informatics who specializes in the emergency department setting. Um, and we are through the literature review process with that. There is actually a limited amount of research in um, nursing education right now specifically related to a handoff tool in EDH. Um, so we're still in the review phase of that, but ideally creating a build in EDH once we evaluate the potential tool everyone will use and we find out what needs to be changed on that, it will hopefully go in that direction next. How do you anticipate training all the nurses to do this kind of handoff? Is it so different? Yeah, so the question is how do you anticipate uh, training all the nurses in this type of handoff process? So um, with a staff as large as the emergency department, it is challenging to get everybody aware of the new quality improvement initiatives. Um, and to assure change, I think to speak to what Bethany had experienced with her project as well, individual education is really, really important, especially when you're changing over in an electronic format. Having people run through um, with an evaluation with a person who can be sort of like the clinical expert in that area will, I think, be important for that. Can you all hear me up there? <laughs> so my name is Jane Eaton. I'm in the master's program and like my colleagues here and my peers and I'm, um, we did a 5P assessment on the intensive care nursery initially. Um, and I was very fortunate to be able to um, work on two different microsystems um, where the global aim was to improve the discharge process for vulnerable infants. Um, so I had the opportunity to work with the nurses in the intensive care nursery on improving discharge education. And then we, um, in typical CNL fashion, sometimes have to back up and look at things more of an upstream fashion. And so we went into the prenatal side, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm using like the we here, but I had a wonderful opportunity to work with the Department of OBGYN on this project which encompassed the development and implementation of a plan of safe care for all babies substance exposed who were born at Dartmouth before they're discharged. Between the years 1998 and 2011, the number of women in the U.S. who suffer with opioid use disorder but who also were pregnant more than doubled. Every four deliveries out of 1,000 were born to mothers with substance use disorder. And of course, the effects on infants 
of in utero substance use disorder can be significant and can include neonatal abstinence syndrome. And now the more common term is neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, or NOWS. New Hampshire has seen a five-fold increase in this condition over 10 years for babies. In 2015, 7.8% of newborns born at Dartmouth were diagnosed with NAS. So as you can see, a safe transition to home for these babies is really important. And one of the things that clinical nurse leaders do is really monitor transition care. Currently in New Hampshire, there is pending legislation which will require all babies, 100% of infants, have a plan of safe care before being discharged from the hospital if they are substance exposed. The Department of OBGYN saw an opportunity with this legislation pending to ensure plan of safe care for pregnant women with substance use disorder. And it was truly a collaborative effort, multidisciplinary over two microsystems, um, inpatient, outpatient, multiple social workers, um, care managers, pediatricians, and obstetricians, and certified midwives. The goal was to begin the plan of safe care in the prenatal clinic. This um, will give the mom enough time to plan with her healthcare team prior to admission to deli for delivery so that she can then put multiple um, supports in place and work with the social workers on the prenatal side before she gets to an admission, which is only days. Most babies with um, NAS or NOWS spend only, they have to spend four days monitored here at the hospital, but they also now room in with the mom. They used to be in the ICN. The new trend now is rooming in, skin to skin, breastfeeding if possible. And so that's not a very small, that's a very small window of time for any mom, social worker, um, care manager to develop all these supports before this baby can go home. So our goal was to have this done in the prenatal clinic. Um, the, some of the supports are, um, one, one of the biggest ones is referring to medication-assisted treatment with methadone or buprenorphine. Um, both of those drugs are shown to um, be better than for the mom, for the pregnancy, then quitting cold turkey. Better for the baby at withdrawal as well. So the methods I used or we used as a team to do this were first we um, developed the process flow diagram, which was created to understand barriers to um, where the mom could enter treatment and how, what providers she needs to see and what referrals need to happen. And this is on the prenatal side. The purple pod, is a um, clinic for moms with substance use disorder. So um, we ideally wanted to get um, all moms to go that way. And they also can provide Matt there and begin the discussion for the plan of safe care. An infographic was the next thing that I did to educate providers on the need for the plan of safe care. And that, that's being currently passed around to the Department of OBGYN and will be on the walls over there. And 
um, use electronically. And then a new plan of safe care template was added to the current care coordination note that the department already uses when they're documenting for their moms. Um, this plan of safe care will get flagged in EDH and it will come up ahead of the care coordination note so providers will know there's a need for it. And the fourth was the documentation in, in EDH called the dot phrase or smart phrase as the nursing knows it um, for discussion with the provider so the provider can have an easy script to document that he had the discussion with the mom and that referrals were made. So the nursing implications for this are number one, trust is a huge factor for moms with substance use disorder. They're very reticent to report their um, substance use, for, first of all for shame and stigma, but most, most importantly for fear that DCYF will be involved, child protective custody might be involved, um, which is not the case for a plan of safe care, but moms have a huge trust issue. Um, so the, the potential for providers to not understand the plan of safe care, and there was a lot of confusion about it, um, giving consistent messaging is really important for these moms so that they're not hearing um, different things about from different providers. So the infographic and the care coordination template will help with that. And as I said, implementing this in the prenatal clinic will foster trust with the moms and the healthcare providers and increase her confidence in being able to provide safe care for her baby. And further work is ongoing is the creation of a phone app where moms can store their data for the plan of safe care because as you can imagine over a nine month period, um, a lot of things may change for her. So that's current work that's ongoing. So that's it, is there any questions? I thank you very much. Nicole? Deliver the babies, or how is the plan of care going to be disseminated to you know, right, the birthing right. pavilion, and then again to the ICN? Like, how is that all going to play out? Right. So, because this was multidisciplinary um, in meetings, the whatever is happening in the care coordination note with the new plan of safe care template, the social workers and the pediatricians can pull that on admission to, for delivery and then attach it to the discharge summary so it becomes the plan of safe care. New Hampshire and like many states has mandated that a plan of safe care be in place but has not outlined what that really means and is leaving it to hospitals. So there's a lot of confusion. That says that they have a plan of care. I mean, how do, yeah. if somebody just goes to the birthing pavilion and has a baby, how, is, how are they gonna know that this patient has a it's in that care coordination note from the OBGYN side and can be seen by all the social workers and any other, yes. Yeah, so it sounds to me like the goal of the state is to have the plan, but there doesn't seem to be a way to measure if it's successful. How Correct. are you measuring success 
for these new families? Yet to be determined. Um, that was one of my first questions, and I come from somewhat of a legal background, so one of my first questions was, how do they know if we did it? How, and um, so that's yet to be determined. And of course, Dr. Whalen, who also is on this project, will tell you that we have a plan of safe care for every baby going out of this hospital, no matter what. But moms with substance use disorder have more requirements. Um, and so we, um, it's not like they're going to take a piece of paper from the hospital, but um, that's yet to be determined. So this work is still in progress. Um, it's actually in 2003 um, was mandated from the Child Protection Treatment Act and um, has been ongoing work since about 2015 with our Department of OBGYN. And so I stepped into it mid-semester and um, we were able to accomplish quite a bit of work in four weeks. But it's an ongoing discussion. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Can everyone hear me up there? Yeah? Good. So my name is Meredith, and I did my project on the inpatient psychiatry unit here at Dartmouth. I focused on two west, not two east, for this, the purpose of this project. But a lot of the data that I'm going to talk about spans both units. Um, so shared decision-making is a critical aspect of patient-centered care and is a concept that has been deemed fundamental by the Institute of Medicine. Literature supports that when patients are engaged in their care, they're more likely to understand their healthcare decisions, they make better informed medical care decisions, they collaborate effectively with their providers, and most importantly, they're better able to follow through on the decisions that are made during plan of care. Literature also supports specifically that patients suffering from mental health disorders want to be involved in their care decisions, and in fact, they desire to be involved in their treatment plan. Psychiatry is a unique field of medicine as the therapeutic relationship between patient and their medical team is vital to ensure trust. Uh, as my peers have discussed, a thorough microsystem assessment was conducted in the fall of 2017. During this microsystem assessment, the morning treatment team meeting was identified as an area of opportunity for growth. This meeting occurs every weekday morning on inpatient psychiatry units, and it involves the patient, attending physician, resident physicians, case management, social workers, mental health therapists, as well as nursing. Um, it was observed that during this morning treatment team meeting that um, patients weren't really aware of this until day two or three of their hospitalization, and the average length of stay is four to five, so you can understand if they're only really understanding that this is taking place on day two or three that they're missing out on a couple of days that are uh, vital to their um, hospitalization. It was also observed that patients were seen sleeping or performing ADLs during the treatment team meeting and missing out on this opportunity or delaying the treatment team. Because of the strength of the morning treatment team meeting and the impact that this has on the patient's care, this quality improvement project focused on enhancing the awareness of the morning treatment team meeting so as to enhance shared decision making. So I created a rationale which was that if the literature shows that shared decision making enhances engagement and improves outcomes for psychiatric patients, and shared decision-making is impeded by patients not being aware of the treatment team meeting, 
when decisions about plan of care are made, then improving awareness of this meeting will enhance shared decision-making in the inpatient psychiatric setting so as to improve the patient's overall health. My specific aim was to increase the average SDMQ9 scores from the current baseline, which was 59%, to 70% by March 31st. And I'll discuss in a couple minutes what SDMQ9 is. So my methods um, to measure the success of this project, um, I collected the following data. I collected data on the level of shared decision-making using those SDMQ9 scores, the length of stay, readmission rates, the duration and minutes of the morning treatment team meeting, and the number of patients seen in the correct order for the treatment team meeting. So to discuss a little bit about the SDMQ9, because this was a large part of my project, um, it stands for the Shared Decision-Making Questionnaire. It's a valid and reliable nine-item tool that assesses the patient's perceived level of involvement in shared decision-making. It was created to assess the practices of shared decision-making in real time with patients who suffer from serious mental illness who are currently hospitalized in an inpatient psychiatric unit setting. It uses a Likert scale, which asks the patients to rate their statement from completely disagree to completely, completely agree. Excuse me. Um, all nine questions assess how the patients perceive their level of involvement in care. The interventions for my projects were the addition of the treatment team meeting to the master daily schedule, as well as to the television on the 2S psychiatry unit. I revised the family handout document to create a new patient and family handout document that included the treatment team meeting and a formal procedure for the treatment team meeting. But a little caveat, that was already done prior to my coming on the unit in January. So that part was done for me. Um, so the results of this project, as you can see in the bottom of your slide, um, with the two bar graphs, were positive. However, to be completely honest, there was not enough data points to deem that they were statistically significant. However, um, they're still impressive, I think. Um, the average duration of time it took the treatment team meeting to see the patients in the morning decreased from the baseline average of 84.6 to 79.8 minutes. Um, and the SDMQ9 scores increased from a baseline average of 61% to 72% by the end of PDSA 2. Um, but more importantly, and I'm not sure that you can really see it very well, but over here on the screen um, is the qualitative data that was collected throughout the interventions. Um, Patients reacted really positively to knowing about the treatment team meeting. Um, and I'll kind of highlight a couple of the quotes that were heard. Um, one patient was heard saying, I like to know what is expected of me while in the hospital. I've been hospitalized a lot and each place is different. And then another patient, patient was heard saying, part of what I'm working on is creating a daily routine. I like the television schedule so I know what I need to do. It's helping me get to recovery. Um, and then to speak to the other data points that I was measuring, um, the data pertaining to length of stay in the end wasn't appropriate. There was one um, patient that was kind of an outlier of stay, and I couldn't get the um, data abstractor to kind of take that data out. So the data was really skewed and was no longer applicable. And the data pertaining to readmission rates was unavailable at the time that I created this poster. I think they come out on a quarterly basis, so I was unable to get those and then data regarding whether or not the patients were seen in the correct order didn't end up being relevant to this project, so I chose not to include them either. Um, so this project was overall successful, both from a quality improvement data analytic perspective, as well as an academic perspective. I learned a great deal on implementing quality improvement in real time. Um, I learned that it's not always what we look, have it look like on paper, which was really great to learn. Um, 
for example, I had to kind of change mid-cycle. We had a patient safety issue, and I had to no longer use the television schedule. So we kind of had to just kind of go with the flow and make changes um, as they came. Some ideas for future projects to continue to enhance shared decision-making in the inpatient setting um, would be the use of decision aids, including the patient's support system in their decisions regarding care, creating a daily routine that includes specific sleep wait times for the patients, um, and further data can be collected on the use of sleep aids and whether or not those impact the patient being awake and ready in the morning. Um, so to speak to the role of the CNL, um, this project focused obviously on the role of the CNL um, pretty strongly. A strong foundation in improvement science, research, and population health was demonstrated. The needs of the microsystem was integrated with best practice, and based on the microsystem assessment conducted in the fall, this quality improvement project was developed and led. Um, collaboration was required between all members of the interprofessional team. And um, that's it. So any questions? especially in psychiatry, so much of the qualitative data is really much more reflective than the quantitative data, so. Yes? Did you have any qualitative data from the staff? The question is, did I have any qualitative data from the staff? Um, I think staff really appreciated me being there. Um, I think one of the things that I discuss in the paper that I'm writing as a limitation is um, my presence being there, I think, may have skewed the data a little bit because I was bringing awareness to it, but staff felt like, um, it was an extra person to go and get the patients and make them aware of the morning treatment team meeting, and they appreciated the fact that they didn't have to, in the morning, when they're passing meds and getting their documentation done, they didn't have to go and find their patient when it was their turn. Um, a couple patients, a couple staff members also discussed when they were admitting a patient um, and they would go over the new patient family handout, that the patients would turn it over and that they appreciated knowing they could have the discussion with them then that if there was any questions that the team would see them the next day and it was kind of their way of, you know, continuing that care and not having to kind of get the doctor to answer all the questions at that time. Thank you. Thank you. actually highlighted the, the role of the CNL on that unit and, and let the staff be aware of that. Thank you. Hear me? I'm Kimberly Hill. I did my quality improvement project in the medical intensive care unit on 3 and 4 North. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the background. The literature review along with my 5P assessment shows that communication um, barriers are um, found to be a primary contributing factor to adverse events in healthcare. So it's a leading cause of errors. High acuity environments caused many challenges to interdisciplinary rounding. Um, patient alarms, phone calls, needs to return urgent pages are all interruptions to the rounding process. Um, so that was my primary focus, was to create a standardized rounding tool to help aid in the process. I had a very ambitious, specific aim to increase my um, utilization from a 
baseline of 30% to a goal of 100% by March 31st. Um, my interventions were to focus on the, are the staff feel that it is a valid tool? Do they feel like it's a something that they would like to work on? Is Do they have a consistent place to find the information if they're not at rounds? And they also said in the intervention that they wanted the safety checklist off the current tool. So my first PDSA cycle was to remove the safety checklist from the tool and then to revise the tool that they already had. Um, and then my second PDSA cycle, I had a challenge between the associate providers and the resident providers. Um, my measures were to focus on, are they using the tool? Um, do they like the tool? And are the staff presenting at daily rounds? Um, my results showed that the staff indeed liked the tool. Staff satisfaction was increased by 16%. When asked if they recognized that the tool had a standardized way to see if they could, um, if they were not at rounds, was there a standardized way to find the daily plan of care? That was increased by 15%. Um, in the second PDSA cycle, when the associate providers were um, against the resident providers, the associates performed at an 88%, where the residents performed at 74%, so a little bit better. That team is a consistent provider team where the residents kind of circulate through, um, so they performed a bit better. And then after that, the utilization numbers dropped off but the resident providers had circulated out and they were not re-educated on the plan. Uh, next steps will be to focus on longer term goals, which would be to make sure not only are they utilizing the sheet, but are long term patient care outcomes met so that we're not getting more CLABSIs, more CADIs, or more hospital acquired C. diff, and that the length of stay in the MACU is not increasing. Um, so that the collaborative effort to communicate is actually improving patient care. Um, and then for the conclusion, although that my goal of 100% was not met, we did increase by 20% for the utilization. Um, and then ongoing efforts for um, passing this project off to unit-based champions. So it will continue on. Any questions? <laughs> Yes. What's your take on what looks like the Hawthorne effect related to your personal presence? So you know that there was really, really strong performance when you were there, and then things slipped when you were away. So sure. What do you think the strategies are to work on So your question is, what do I think impacted the high utilization when I was there and then lower when I was not there? So I think... As you said, higher implementation while I was there, I think that's lateral integration, which is a key indicator of the CNL. So I think while I was there, they did perform better. When I was there, they'd hold up the sheet and kind of say, look, we're doing it, we're doing it. Um, and then when I was not there, I think that is just change implementation. I think having unit-based champions, people who are there um, all of the time, and then just... Um, having um, maybe an implementation of a clinical nurse leader on that unit will help. Yes? Did your unit staff um, agree that this was an issue that needed to be addressed? 
They did. Yes. Yeah, so in the pre-implementation survey, I don't have it on here, but they did agree that uh, utilization was low and that they wanted to participate more in rounds. They said they fill out the sheet and that nobody looks at it. my clinical across the hall from the SICU in the intermediate special care unit, which is, I come from a background of being an intensive care nurse, so where we do rounds very well in comparison to some of the other floors, which I'm now observing as a house supervisor. Um, so when I got there and was, was doing my observations last fall, I was surprised to see that the collaboration between the physicians or providers and the nursing just really wasn't there. So when I did a pre-survey with this, with this group of nurses, they identified that there was very poor collaboration, that they weren't being heard by the physicians and the providers, and that they would really like to have work done on this. So we've talked about the Joint Commission stating, you know, in 2013 that 60% of Sentinel events are actually related to these communication failures. So I'm not going to focus too much on that. However, interdisciplinary rounding and interdisciplinary collaboration has been linked to positive patient outcomes. So the purpose of my project was to improve and standardize collaboration within the intermediate special care unit, the ISCU, so that we could improve not just patient outcomes, but also the nursing and provider satisfaction. So... My goal was to increase plan of care discussions by 10% and to decrease pages. One of the big things in the ISCU is that they serve every service in the hospital. So unlike Neuro or unlike 3West where they service mostly ortho, the ISCU has everything. So they have so many professions coming in and out of their unit that it can be very difficult with the rotations in, the, in an academic facility to kind of be able to know each individual person and to be able to collaborate and kind of on a, a, a well-known basis. They're all, they can be at times aliens to their unit, especially if they're brand new. So I did a... I use validated tools, the nurse-physician collaboration scale, and the Jefferson scale of attitudes towards collaboration to survey actually both providers and nurses. When I did this, the nurse-provider collaboration scale surveyed how people felt about current collaboration practices, which, interestingly, physicians thought they were doing a pretty good, good job. The surgical residents were like, we do, we do a pretty good job at collaborating with nurses. Well, nurses were on the opposite end of the spectrum saying, we don't feel like collaboration is done very well here in this unit. So, but what was funny was with the Jefferson's attitudes, which assesses the attitudes towards collaboration, both physicians and nurses believed 
that collaboration was very important and they were very close on that scale. That is not up on this poster because I couldn't fit it, but it's there. Um, so the other thing I did was during this time, I had created a tool, it was a three question survey that the primary nurse would fill out on their surgical patients every day. The first question asked whether or not a plan of care discussion occurred, they circled yes or no. The second one was a Likert scale rating of how well they understood the um, plan of care discussion. Um, zero being they didn't discuss it at all, one being clear as mud, and five being crystal clear. And the third one was a qualitative data assessing factors that prevented those plan of care discussions from occurring. And the second part of it was the paging tracker, because evidence stated that if you are discussing plan of cares and communication is well done, then you will have a decrease in paging. So I was like, oh, that's a good thing for surgical residents because they're in the OR and maybe they'll actually participate. So when I did my PDSA-1, I went to a, or as Carrie Rosencrantz likes to say, I commandeered her journal club. And I went and educated the surgical providers on this. And they agreed that, you know, it's not always well done. So we started with a rounding checklist. Unfortunately, this first PDSA was a total flop because it wasn't that they needed a rounding checklist, but both nursing and providers actually needed a change in culture. So when I say that, it wasn't that they needed tools to help them have these discussions. They needed to be able to feel empowered to either go up to a physician or for physicians to then be like, oh, this is part an expectation of my job that I touch base with the nursing staff. So that was really important. So my second PDSA was actually utilizing myself as well as a couple project champions to kind of identify places within their rounds that it was a good time to either pull the nurse in or for then the provider to approach the nurse about um, the plan of care. And the third PSA, which was recommended by the residents, was that, so what happens if we really can't see, if we really can't find the nurse? So the unique thing about the ISCU is that they have three nurses in the morning during surgical rounds. There are the charge nurses in an assignment, so it makes it very difficult to be able to cover one another to participate in rounds. So there were, their residents were really making a strong suggestion that there be some sort of way that they can communicate goals, like they do in the ICU, if they are unable to reach the nurse. So we are currently in the process of develop, utilizing the treatment team sticky notes, which is actually not a permanent part of the um, of the of EDH or the patient's chart, it can be time-stamped so you know that it's a valid tool that can be used, and it's most people know how to use it. So uh, the surgical director was going to assess the resident's comfort with this and the knowledge gaps of using this tool so that we could eventually roll out using that if the nurses during the time when there's only three of them there are either at a study or a test would be able to still put the plan of care um, within, so that the nurses could see it. So after all of this work, I did have a 45% increase in the plan of care discussions. 
Again, the Hawthorne effect was definitely pertinent with this with this project as there was two weeks during that time that I was there for four days a week from six in the morning until 11, kind of helping to facilitate, which strongly suggests that this unit would benefit from either having some sort of leadership outside of an assignment or having a CNO. The one thing that did unfortunately go up is the paging, which was the exact opposite of what all the literature says. So I was like, oh, great, now I can bring this back. <laughs> but it, yeah, right? but I felt like some of the nurses actually felt more empowered because they were like, well, I haven't heard from the doctor. I'm going to page them. And so it was, it was fine. I was like, I think that is a good use of a page. If you haven't heard from somebody by 1 o'clock, it's probably a good time to page the doctor. Um, I also did a post-modified like a modified post-survey using the nurse physician provider collaboration scale. And there was a slight improvement in the feelings towards collaboration during these few weeks that I was there on the unit. The greatest, the other thing that I would like to do is like 12 to 18 months down the road, kind of look at these patient quality indicators and see how much improvement there was, especially with the, this unit not having windows to the outside, that length of stay within the unit where the expectation is that patients won't stay there for more than a couple days, that it's really important to like make sure that we are discussing plan of cares to get these patients out of the unit so that they don't get delirious or, you know, <laughs> there's just so many things that you can benefit from a window, depressed. Otherwise, um, I had great leadership and buy-in from stakeholder, key stakeholders. I think it would be beneficial not to just use nursing um, nursing project champions, but to also use resident project champions, especially those that are also going to be here with the influx of new residents in July. And the limitations were the time constraints of the academic calendar, only being there mostly two days a week without this, which I was there more. Um, and otherwise, and the fact that the project champions are in assignments. Any questions? Yes. Yeah, this was sounds like a great project. Um, did did were the I wasn't clear were the nurses also able to use the yellow stickies in the chart, or was it mainly uh, a one-way communication from the MD to the nurse? Right. So this PDSA has not been rolled out yet because we're still in the process. Carrie was going to be talking to the residents last week oh, okay. about this, um, but the hope is that they would that there would be some sort of communication. It's too bad that we have the old pagers where there isn't two-way communication. Um, unfortunately, that's a much larger system issue than what I can really, as a CNL and a microsystem in an academic calendar, target. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yes, uh, hopefully, like there will be development of that so, at some point. Yeah. Is there a problem with communication of plan of care in the day-to-day Right, so the issue that I found out when I commandeered that journal club is that, so residents' notes are signed off by attendings, and Dr. Martin actually pointed out, because that was brought up, that he oftentimes won't sign those notes until 8, 9 o'clock at night. So they're not actually, you can't actually see them. So that was the issue as to why there has to be those plan of care discussions 
because they're not officially published until the attending signs it off. Correct. Right. Yeah, they have to be co-signed. I think that once we get a CNL on every single unit in this hospital, <laughs> we just need to come up with some communication plan that is across the board the same right. way so that, especially in areas like this where, you know, and in the ED too, you know, you can't have a communication plan with one service. It's, right multiple services and then it's different on every single unit you know mm -hmm. and I think you guys are doing a great job at you know discovering this and bringing light to it um, but it would be neat to have a CNL on each unit and roll out at a hospital-wide plan that physicians and nurses kind of all agreed on for every unit for every patient yeah um, every time every time <laughs> <laughs> we're waiting. I can introduce myself. Hi, I'm Erica Leonard, and I'm a clinical nurse leader student who did my practicum on two and three East medical specialties. And so just like my classmates, I did a microsystem assessment last semester on the unit. And then afterwards, I met with a nurse manager, Nicole Parks, and we reviewed the results. So we found that an area that had a need for improvement was the utilization of indwelling urethral catheters and reducing cauti. So why is this important? Hospital-acquired urinary tract infections account for 40% of hospital-acquired infections, and 80% of these infections are related to the utilization of indwelling urethral catheters. Increases in cauti are associated with increased morbidity increased hospital length of stay, and increased healthcare cost. The interventions that have shown to be effective in preventing CAUTI are early removal of the catheters, insertion prevention, and nurse-driven catheter removal protocols. So once I completed my literature review, I decided I was gonna focus my education for staff surrounding the nurse-driven indwelling catheter removal order at DH. The timeline for our project was January of 2018 to April of 2018. So starting from my methods, I created a pre-intervention survey to determine what the nursing knowledge and comfort level was with placing the removal order. And then um, coincidentally, January staff meetings, I was able to share the results with the staff. So the results from that first pre-survey were kind of what I thought. Um, so 67% of nurses were aware of the nurse-driven removal order, while none of the nurses that I had surveyed had ever placed the removal order, and that includes myself. Um, some of the barriers that we identified um, were the complexity of the medicine patient population. Um, nurses, of course, not being aware that there actually was that removal order, and then um, wanting that provider discontinue order. 
So for my first PDSA cycle, I created a urethral catheter policy and procedure reference tool. So that was kind of my own way of pulling. There's four or five different policies related to the indwelling catheter. Get it all on one paper and bring that out to staff. Um, and I highlighted the nurse-driven removal order. So I also created in the TUI's conference room a prevention education board. So let that kind of sit for a week or two. And then for my second PDSA cycle, I provided education on the Purewick external female catheter, which I'm sure many of you have seen, um, which lucky for me was actually being rolled out at DH right along the same time. Um, so this has actually been found to be a great alternative to the indwelling catheter for patients with immobility. And so what I did was I created a PowerPoint presentation and I put that um, on the TV in the TUI's conference room that was just continuously rolling for them. And then I also set up a visual display of the Purewick catheter with a suction setup so then people are doing rounds, they could play with it and see what it was all about. So let that sit in for a couple weeks as well. And then I've put out recently a post-education survey to see if the education I provided has increased the nursing knowledge and comfort and then um, started the um, data review. So I reviewed catheter utilization and initial current evidence-based indication from the practice evaluations that have been completed. So looking at the results, which you can see, kind of got my six graphs there, um, starting with initial indication. So from January 2018 to March, we've increased the evidence-based indication from 88% to 100%. And the current indication has increased. We still have work to do, but 67% to 77%. So, and then, and two and three E's because they're actually considered, they're considered two separate units. Um, so the number of catheters per month decreased from 24 to 18 on two East, and then from 21 to 15 on three East. The post-survey focused mostly on the nursing comfort and knowledge of the removal order. And so you can see down at the bottom, 93% of the nurses now were aware of the protocol and three nurses had even placed the catheter removal order. There continues to be work done in addressing the barriers and really encouraging the communication between nursing and providers is the essential piece. Um, also, I just wanted to mention, after reviewing the incidence of CAUTIs with infection prevention, there had been three CAUTIs identified in June to December of 2017, and currently there's only been one identified from January 2018 to April 2018. Nursing on the units has been doing an excellent job reviewing the evidence-based indications and advocating for alternate methods to manage the urination and the complex medical patients. So... As part of my sustainability plan, I identified a new infection prevention safety champion. One of the nurses on the unit um, was really engaged with what I was doing, really interested. Um, so she is now going to join infection prevention safety champion and participate in the CAUTI rounding. She's gonna work on completing CAUTI practice evaluations and attend the monthly infection prevention safety champion meetings. And this work has definitely been supported by the two and three E's nursing leadership team and their staff. So the role of the CNL would continue to support nursing, advocate for patients, provide education on evidence-based practice, and improve patient safety and outcomes.
I'd like to conclude with acknowledging lots of people. Um, the Two and Three East Nursing Leadership Team, Nicole Parks, Anna Skelton, Sarah Chin, Michelle Charest Morgan, and Krishna Flanders. Also the Two and Three East Inpatient Nurses and Licensed Nursing Assistants, Van Wilmot, the Nurse Educator, Alyssa Olson from Infection Prevention, and my preceptors instructors, Kathy Rodriguez, Lori Nolan Kelly, Nicole Torrey, and Deb Hastings. So thank you very much. <laughs> Any I'm really excited as well because they did not actually currently have an infection prevention safety champion. So to have somebody that's willing to continue this work, it's really exciting. I'd like to draw attention to the fact that um, Erica's project, perhaps more than others, because she did, timing was key, has demonstrated some actual outcome, measurable results on this unit that are really quite impressive for a student in one semester. So. Well done. Thank you very much. My name is Brittany Nyman. Um, I work on One East Medical Specialties, which is an adult inpatient unit. And I chose to be on inpatient pediatrics, which is totally out of my comfort zone. <laughs> So suicide is a serious public health issue. Um, suicide is the third leading cause of death for 10 to 14 year olds and the second leading cause of death for 15 to 24 year olds just in the United States. In 2016, 59 10 to, 4, 10 to 14 year olds and 706 15 to 24 year olds died by suicide in the Northeast. At DHMC, we saw 91 pediatric patients over 111 ED visits just in 2017. It's a little alarming. Um, and patients often, when they're contemplating suicide, do not present saying that I want to kill myself. It's I have a stomach ache. So when we are not asking every patient every time if they're having any thoughts of suicide or if they're depressed, which is a huge risk factor for suicide, um, we could be missing some huge um, options to give them resources that they could need. Nurses are in a very unique position where they can screen for suicide and depression. Current policy here at DHMC doesn't support that we screen every patient. We're only required to screen patients that present with a behavioral diagnosis. So we're missing that kiddo with a bellyache. Um, nurses currently screen using the admission navigator tool, which is non-pediatric specific. And the tool um, only populates for those that are 13 and older, which doesn't align with the American Pediatric Association's recommendation of screening at 10 and up every year. So the purpose of this quality improvement project is to improve the screening processes for suicide risk and depression in pediatric inpatients at DHMC by implementation of universal pediatric and adolescent-specific screening tools via electronic self-assessment and this would be implemented for 12-year-olds who are both medically and developmentally appropriate. 
Um, eventually, the same screening tool could be used in the emergency department as well as other units which get pediatric overflow. As a clinical nurse leader student, I spent the fall semester learning all about inpatient pediatrics by completing a five-piece assessment. With a vulnerable population and the stigmatized topic of mental health at hand, I went to Dartmouth's IRB, who deemed this project not research with human subjects. I then began to collect baseline data about our screening rates, which showed that we were very inconsistent, which isn't surprising. Um, the nurses were screened as well, and they didn't really know the policy. We weren't screening hardly anybody. We screened 4% for suicidal ideation and 13 for depression. Um, I also collected data in the survey from the nurses, which was electronic, um, about what they thought the barriers to screening were and their comfort level with screening. So you can see over on the right what they thought the barriers were, which included um, competing priorities, which makes sense, the kiddo is sick, um, parent and family presence. So the nurse has to ask, are you feeling suicidal? If a patient's parent is right there, they're probably not going to give you a real answer. Um, and another barrier was that the nurse wasn't comfortable even asking that. Um, you can see on this histogram that the majority of nurses were not comfortable. So this is kind of a light curt scale in histogram form um, from not comfortable at all asking about suicide and depression to very comfortable. And most of the nurses were not very comfortable. The first PDSA cycle involved coordinating a meeting in which stakeholders reviewed six possible screening tools, and it led to the selection of the PHQ-9 modified for teens. Um, this tool screens for both suicide risk and depression. Psychiatry, inpatient nursing leadership, the EDCNL, and nursing informatics were present at this meeting. One limitation was that all of the nurses that had um, identified they'd like to work with us were either sick or on vacation, so they couldn't make it to the meeting. The second PDSA cycle involved creating an algorithm based on current policy and procedure to guide nurse response and action to the screen results. This screener and algorithm were then brought to the Family Advisory Board made up of parents and healthcare personnel for any other recommendations and their feedback. PDSA cycle three is currently underway and it's a pilot of this PHQ-9 modified tool and the algorithm on paper. There are probably going to be um, other PDSA cycles as we revise this paper form. Paper tends to get lost. This folder has been moved a lot. Um, we've currently only screened one kiddo out of many more than that. <laughs> um, and electronic screening won't be able to be, um, begin until at least July because it wasn't um, in the budget at all. Um, so we weren't able to obtain a license for the electronic application that would allow for screening results to populate from an iPad or a tablet right into Epic. Um, and that won't be able to happen until July, but a grant application was submitted for funding for electronic tablets, so I got some experience with grant writing, which is very eye-opening. Um, you can see uh, the measures that I hoped to collect, but with the delay in my uh, project, I don't have too much data other than we've screened one kiddo. Um, other limitations included the merger of pediatrics and PICU, so pediatrics is up on the fifth floor now. PICU had been on the third floor, Nursing staff is more focused on finding where their respiratory equipment is than finding this folder to screen their kiddos, which is totally understandable. Um, my limited time on the unit and my own discomfort just being in such a different environment have been huge limitations. Um, and all of the questions in this screening tool have been validated as a part of the, a larger tool, the PHQ for adolescents. 
but not necessarily validated in this short form. However, our outpatient clinic uses it as well. Many primary care clinics use it as well. So we decided to go with that, so we're comparing the same tool. <clears throat> I've also learned the importance of identifying your champions early and making sure that they're truly interested in the project and not other things. Um, the importance of trialing your data collection plan. I went from an Excel spreadsheet, discovered REDCap, made a survey in there, um, and just getting my measures to really align has been challenging. I've also learned the impact on other microsystems, the mesosystem, and the macrosystem, as my project will most likely impact the ED and other units when the electronic screening is fully implemented. Um, the clinical nurse specialist has been incredibly instrumental in this project, and she'll definitely be helpful in sustaining as in, she is already there every day and a reminder to people that it's important to screen our kiddos. The CNL would be another person that could be there day after day um, and get more comfortable in the environment because they're there day after day um, to make sure that we're improving our patient outcomes and reinforcing the importance of mental health, which a huge stigma is still surrounding that. Any questions? Yeah? I, I don't have, it's a comment. <laughs> talked about this a lot while you've been doing this and I just I'm very impressed with the amount of work that you've done that you've talked to the family advisory board that you did all of these things because it's such it's still there's a huge stigma attached to it so as someone that has a child a young child I appreciate this for the future too because it's important but you figure out early on what's happening to maybe prevent things later on mm -hmm. so thank you thank you and I can say you, even though like it hasn't taken off, people are buzzing about it now. And I even had family advisory board members write me about it and excited about it coming and pushing for the grant to go through. So thank you. It's a good things to come. Yeah. I was just wondering, is there any way to implement just a paper process and put the score into their assessment until they do the, yeah. the EMR? Because that's a lot of patients and a lot of time. Yeah, so the nice thing and why another reason we picked the tool, um, the paper tool, is that it is already built into Epic. We do not have it on the inpatient side, though it's only on the outpatient side, so it just requires some tweaking. Um, but we have talked about putting in a ticket to have it populate in our admission navigator for pediatric patients. So the nurse, it just kind of creates double work for the nurse to have them fill out the paper and then go through and click all of the choices, but that has been um, talked about as an option. Thank you. So my name is Jenna Parsons. Am I too close? Okay. <laughs> um, and I did my project on Two West inpatient surgery. Um, but that also involved um, being on the PACU as well. Um, and the purpose of my project is kind of similar um, to that of Katie's, and it's to improve communication handoff and patient flow um, between the PACU and 2West. Um, so like everyone else, I performed a microsystem assessment on 2West, um, and this allowed me to get to know more about the environment, the patients, um, the staff, um, and the processes of care. 
And one of the things that I looked at was the nurse satisfaction engagement survey, um, which showed that 50% of two West nurses felt that communication was optimal between the units. Um, and this led me to the topic of communication. And in, re in reviewing the literature, um, the Joint Commission revealed that a study in a study of 38 100 patient adverse events, they found that 65% of the cases were due to miscommunication, and half of those happened during um, transfer handoff. Um, so studies have also showed that inefficient patient flow is linked to a delay in patient care, um, increased costs, and decreased patient and staff satisfaction. Um, so looking at my methods, um, there were, uh, I used PDSA cycles with small tests of change, and the number one measure that I looked at was measuring the number of minutes that it um, took for the transfer, transfer process to take place from when the PACU nurse first called to give report to when the patient got to, to West. Um, and then my specific aim for this was to decrease from a baseline of 43 minutes down to um, an average of 30 minutes. And then my second measure was a staff satisfaction survey. Um, and over on the left there, um, I put out a pre-implementation survey. I can't read it from over here because that is blocked. But one of the questions was, how satisfied are you with the PACU transfer handoff? 12% um, were not satisfied, and 88% were somewhat satisfied. Um, and then the results of that are still pending. So that was my second measure. Um, so for PDSA 1, um, I focused on awareness. And the specific aim was posted in a huddle screen on the 2S conference room board. So that was rolling through for about a week. Um, I also, during that week, sent out a PowerPoint presentation educating the 2S nurses on the workflows in the PACU, the discharge criteria, um, and the importance of patient flow out of the PACU, because as we know, this can be affected, um, affect many other parts of the MISO systems and the macro system as well. PDSA cycle two, I trialed um, a report poll system. So right now, um, it's more of a push system. The PACU nurses are calling out to the units to give report. So we tried having the two West nurses call PACU for a report once that um, bed was pended. Um, that didn't work out very well, only because beds currently right now are being pended um, even before the, the PACU patients are ready for discharge. Um, PDSA cycle three, we trialed a standardized report tool um, being tubed from the PACU to two west. And that is shown up here, figure four. Um, and this is a tool that was already, um, some of the PACU nurses are already using. And I took this back to 2West and spoke with some of the nurses and had um, a few points added of important information. Um, so what they did was when the patient was ready for discharge, they tubed this through the system. The 2West nurse would get the report, and then they would call the PACU nurse to let them know that it was there. And then that was a time for them to exchange any other information or get any questions answered. Um, and so looking at the results, um, you can see here in my X chart, um, the baseline data is the blue line. Um, and then the red data that's circled there, um, that is about a week after starting PDSA cycle one. 
So just spreading awareness um, and education around the importance of patient flow, um, you see that uh, we had improvement there. Um, okay. And then when um, I added the data from PDSA cycles two and three, uh, we saw that the goal did in fact, um, we did meet the goal of 30 minutes. Um, on here, I said that I was unable to meet the specific aim of 30 minutes, but that was before adding the rest of the data. Um, so I'm currently working on a sustainability plan to keep the work moving forward, and this involved identifying safety champions from both units and um, bringing them together in a collaborative work group. And this was with an idea of promoting a sense of team between the different units. Oftentimes we all work in our different silos on all the units and we don't get chances to build relationships. Um, and so what happened out of this is um, I got some themes that we got out of it. The top one was building trust. We started out the meeting talking about different patient stories that we felt really impacted the patient experience. Um, as well as understanding workflows. We talked about how we could en enhance communication and really start to develop um, relationships. And the feedback from this um, was actually really good feedback. So some of the um, feedback they said, it, sorry, it allowed each unit's representatives to express frustration in the system, which leads to mutual understanding and respect for unique challenges each of us face. So that was one of the PACU nurses. Um, to Westerners, anytime people in different positions, roles, learn about other people's workflow, it is helpful. I think it would be a great idea to continue this practice. And then the PACU nurse said, I really love the idea of having new graduates shadow on all the inpatient units, not only to develop an understanding of the flow of the unit, but also to develop those relationships with people that you otherwise would not have interactions with outside of calling report. And then Two West Nurse says, since the meeting, I feel my attitude towards the PACU and getting report has changed for the better. Um, so moving forward for nursing practice, um, these are topics that should be spread to all of the surgical units so that we can hopefully start to break away from our different silos and really build these relationships um, so that we can really have a sense that we're all on the same team and provide patient-centered care. Um, as well as hopefully um, increase patient and staff, staff satisfaction um, and efficiency in patient flow, which will have an impact on the whole organization. Um, so my recommendations for continued work are to trial a bedside report between PACU and the surgical units. I think that that will help to foster more of a relationship. One thing that I learned was that um, a lot of the nurses on 2S had never been to the PACU and don't realize that it's a big open room. It's really not a place for a patient to stay and to heal. Um, so moving them out when they're ready is very important. Um, and then to explore further how we can implement uh, more of these collaborative work groups and to utilize the latest technology to enhance handoff report. I know that the Nursing Informatics Group has just recently released the new professional exchange report into EDH, I think just last week. Um, so I've been looking at that a little bit and hopefully that'll be a helpful tool moving forward with that as well. Um, any questions? Okay.
Hi, everybody. I'm Brianna. I did my practicum in the surgical trauma ICU, the SICU. The last... Oh. I'll wait. Can you hear me? Can everybody hear me? So last fall, during my microsystem analysis um, of the SICU, I identified early progressive mobility as an area for improvement. Early progressive mobility is getting the patient up and moving as soon as medically appropriate to help improve patient outcomes. Um, it is part of a larger evidence-based bundle known as the ICU Liberation Bundle, or the ATH-REF Bundle, and it helps decrease ICU delirium. Up to 80% of all intubated patients will develop ICU delirium, and this has significant impacts. It causes increased length of stay, increased risk for mortality, and increased cognitive dysfunction. It is also associated with 39% higher ICU costs and 31% higher hospital costs. The effects of ICU delirium can continue after discharge. So these are the patients who have difficulty finding a parked car, following a simple recipe, and returning to work. The SICU Practice Area Council also identified this as a significant issue around the same time. So I partnered up with a PAC, Practice Area Council, team and worked with PAC co-chairs Matt Thompson and Robert Button very closely as equal partners in this project. We also worked closely with respiratory therapy, physical therapy, and occupational therapy. Early progressive mobility was actually implemented in the ICUs in 2015, but it was never a sustained culture. So Matt and Robert were essential to getting staff buy-in at the grassroots level in the SICU. We used plan-do-study act cycles to implement our interventions. The first cycle was a pre-PDSA cycle that allowed us to collect baseline data. Some highlights from our pre-implementation survey were about 49% of staff were unaware of the current EPM protocol that was at Dartmouth. All who took the survey identified that EPM had good effects for the patients, but about 32% of staff felt some discomfort with performing it. During our implementation phase, we focused on mobility rounding and staff education. Mobility rounding was new to the ICU and just began about a little over a month ago, March 5th, and it occurs every day, Monday through Friday at 8.15, and it is led by PT and OT. They meet with a clinical bedside nurse to discuss RAS, which is sedation agitation score, CAM, which is a confusion delirium score, and safety precautions per an expert consensus, and then also the current activity order. They use this information to develop an activity goal for the day. The goal for rounding is to take about one minute per patient to ensure efficiency. The SICU has 18 beds, so the maximum amount of time we'd want to take is between 20 and 30 minutes based on travel time. Um, during our trial period of mock rounds, we were finding that it was taking sometimes over 90 minutes, and this is where the education came into play. As nursing staff became more familiar with the process and the protocol, the process was much faster. Some positives for mobility rounding are that the nurses have increased comfort with using the protocol and identifying activity levels. They're familiar with the RAS score and safety precautions. And mobility rounds is a good time to plan for anticipated therapy, whether in the morning or in the afternoon. Some difficulty occurred with RN availability because it's a busy time for the nurses as they start their day. And it also occurs at the same time as the physician team rounds. An area for improvement is the CAM scoring. We're finding that CAM scores are not being performed regularly, and sometimes there are, is some guessing around the score. Also, some nurses are not familiar with their patient's current activity order when we are rounding. Staff education occurred during mandatory staff meetings for the month of March. Staff watched a video about the complications of ICU delirium, 
and they learned that EPM is medicine during a presentation from our local EPM expert, Guy Wilson, who works in the SICU and was part of the initial EPM project in 2015. Um, and then also they participated in a live skills mobility session with members from PT and OT. So Mo from PT and Trisha from OT. Since the project is ongoing, we have not collected any post-implementation data yet. However, we anticipate a decreased length of stay, decreased ventilator days, increased interprofessional communication, and increased nurse comfort with performing early progressive mobility. A longitudinal goal that is outside the scope of this project, but will be affected as a result is decreased ICU delirium rates in the ICU, in the SICU. So my recommendations moving forward would be to provide more education about the CAM process and its implications for patient care and patient outcomes. And then also to increase provider involvement in the process. And the SICU PAC is continuing this work and they're working on the, the whole bundle. So I know that we'll continue to see great outcomes from these efforts. Any questions? Kathy? Did you have an, a time that you're anticipating to start to pull together a little bit of your outcome? Yeah, so we, we I had a, a very detailed baseline and, you know, planning process, but related to reality, I think one of us mentioned that our timelines didn't actually come to play. So uh, I know that talking to Matt and Robert, that's something that we're looking at doing maybe at the end of April or in May. Yeah. It's really hard in that short Yes, yes, yeah, the, the three-month academic semester, yes. Any other questions? I'm the last one. <laughs> Good evening now, everyone. <laughs> my name's Lindsay Thompson. I'm also in the CNL program at uh, Colby Sawyer, and I did my clinical immersion on One East Medical Specialties. So as of all my colleagues, um, we did a microsystem assessment this fall. Um, so I was on the unit for approximately 40 hours doing my assessment. I talked to staff. Um, leadership, and then we also reviewed the employee engagement survey, which many of us did, and we found that interdisciplinary communication was lacking on the unit and something that I was going to work on moving forward. So why is this important? I think a lot of us talked about this already, but the literature is pretty clear. Sentinel events are um, most certainly related to lacks in communication, communication breakdown, as well as outcomes are also related to good communication. The Joint Commission and the Inst um, Institute of Medicine um, both talked to this, as well as I found much literature reviewing what the best practices for interdisciplinary communication are, as well as a great systematic review on this. Um, so to start briefly this fall, we did a um, small pilot survey just um, talking to staff to figure out um, if this was in fact going to move forward. Um, after doing this, we found that um, communication was lacking and then we're going to move forward. Baseline data was collected um, over a two-month period, December and January, um, and we created a specific aim to increase the percentage of daily in-person communication between physician and nursing um, staff regarding patient plan of care from a baseline to at least 80% by April of 2018. My methods included um, measurements that were done by a paper survey that was filled out by nursing. Um, these measures included um, if rounding was occurring, if it was occurring before noon, if nurses understood the plan of care, 
if nursing was asked to participate in the plan of care discussion, uh, who the primary team was taking care of the patients, and if there are any delays or additional nursing work that was um, added due to the lack of communication regarding the plan of care. So baseline data was collected on 152 patients, and we found that um, according to the nursing staff completing the survey, that um, rounding was occurring on 56% of patients, and that nursing felt that they were um, asked to participate only 28% of the time. So concluding this, um, I went along to start my PDSA studies, my Plan Do Study Acts. Um, my first one was just education. I really wanted to um, discuss the literature that I found regarding communication, um, its relation to sentinel events, and in, um, what good communication can um, lead to better patient outcomes. Um, as well as dispersion of this baseline data of where we are and where we want to go moving forward. Um, so I took this, um, also took this opportunity to um, discuss and um, gather feedback about what we should do moving forward next. So nursing staff and attending physicians were both given this information. Um, I first sent out email information to nursing staff as well as um, discussed it in huddles every morning and discussed it with staff on the unit when I was on the unit. And then physician staff, we um, attended one of their meetings and discussed it in person with them as well. So post-PDSA cycle one, I um, then shadowed a medical team um, on the unit for three um, separate days. Um, there was a limited sample size of patients that they were caring for on one ACE, but it gave me a better idea of what the barriers may have been from the nursing and physician perspectives. Um, sustainability of the project thus far was not able to be assessed during this time, so therefore we um, then moved on to our second PDSA cycle. Um, so physicians also felt like it was sometimes nursing staff just wasn't available to be able to talk to them, so they really wanted a way to encourage and give the um, plan of care to um, nursing staff, so we implemented the Sorry We Missed You notes. Um, so these notes were physician-driven, um, and it's just simply for when they really can't find the nursing staff um, to be able to give them an update. So the notes were presented at staff meetings um, to the nursing staff um, the week of March 19th. These were mandatory, so all nursing staff were um, able to hear about this, and then they're introduced on the unit April 2nd. The other thing that we were working on kind of succinctly with this um, was a third PDSA cycle, which is um, so many new nurses were on the unit, as well as so many staff rotating through um, their residency that a lot of the staff didn't know each other. So um, we presented the idea of doing nursing pictures that were going to be posted on the um, whiteboards um, outside of the, on each pod to be able to better identify um, who the members of the team were. So we presented this at a February PAC meeting, the practice area council meeting. We obtained majority buy-in from the nursing staff and after the March PAC meeting, we started to roll this out. So we are currently gathering pictures right now to implement this as well. So moving forward, and once all the um, pictures are collected, we will implement that um, as another intervention on the unit. Um, but since my Semester is coming to an end. There is a lot of lessons and limitations that I have learned to doing this. Um, so some of the things include my academic calendar and my motivation and my um, drive to get all of this done. This is a much bigger project than me and the three-month period that I'm in. So um, I need much more time to implement all of this. Um, there's also many competing um, staff priorities. Um, I did not anticipate the delays and the length of time it would take to um, get on meetings for attending physicians and that sort of thing, so that was a big delay of mine. Um, I also 
the tool that I used to collect baseline data wasn't a validated tool and I didn't use um, definitions on it, but I will use it through my post-implementation of PDSA cycle three to gather information, so it will be consistent. So currently I'm working on sustainability of the project um, and what's to come in the future. I am bringing in um, my PAC members and my unit leadership, um, as well as hoping to get some champions on board as well. There's so much work to be done in this um, project and there's so much more to come after I leave the unit. Um, we did, we don't have post implementation data right now, but we do have a lot of um, feedback just by being on the unit and talking to the nursing staff and I'm, proud and excited to say that so many of the nurses are telling me that I approached the team today and I talked to the team today and I asked them what the plan of care was, which was much more different than three months ago. So I'm very hopeful that just the talk of this is really um, getting out there. I'd like to thank One East for allowing me to be on their unit for this past three months and participating in all of the management and supervisors and the nursing staff as well as the physicians. Um, and finally, I just really think that the adoption of the CNL role um, can really assist in the longevity of this project as well as really look at the quality aspect of it and what quality improved um, quality indicators can be impacted and improved from us being there. Thank you. Any questions? Hi, it's not really a question, it's more of just kind of a comment. Mm -hmm. um, on a more personal note, yesterday actually at work, I work on One East, I received my first sorry we missed you oh. note. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what I can tell you though is truly, and just because the way that it went for the day, um, I was busy with another patient, so I was able to get this note. He had written down the attending, actually, the goals of care for the day, and I never once needed to page the team. I knew exactly what was going on, and we were able to meet those goals for that patient for that day, so that was amazing. So, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> on a more kind of systems comment, I can tell you that even just since you being there on the unit and what you have provided for kind of a change, you've done a change in culture there, and so how you're talking about you know, nurses are feeling more excited to go up to the team and feel involved in the care. So I think just more on a systems aspect, you've done a great job of even changing the culture of that. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Anything else? couple final words. I neglected to thank, um, of course, we know Laurie was a preceptor for the students, but also Nicole Torrey and Kathy Rodriguez helped bring... If you just want to stand up and... Okay. Or don't, just raise your hand. <laughs> they helped bring these to fruition. I think our goal in part was to showcase these fabulous students. You all did a fabulous job in doing that, and also to show what the role of the CNL can do here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. We know there'll be some as we move into the next um, um, fiscal, year. Yeah, fiscal year. year. Don't know how many, but there will be some. But wherever these um, 12 end up, I think um, they'll do justice to wherever you end up. And um, I think this group has done such amazing work. Thank you to our undergrads for being here, too. Yeah. And hope you're learning something <laughs> about the role. Um, the work that these young women have turned out is just a tribute to their dedication to the program and to their knowledge and, and grasp of the CNL role. So we are really, really proud of them. And um, how many days? 
<laughs> till graduation. How many hours? How many? 21? 24 days till graduation. So. And one more thing, you know that we, we had our CCNE accreditation site visit. We'll be getting, uh, that was this spring, we'll be getting final word in October. The program will continue. So for those of you who are considering grad school, consider the master's program at Colby Sawyer. There'll be more information in the future. You see what a fabulous job these 12 have done. There, there's more to come. So stay tuned and thank you all for coming.